This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. This is a special edition of the podcast with co-host Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, and I'm sitting in for Jeremy Schwartz today. My co-host is the one and only Wharton finance professor, Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and The Future for Investors. Please note that Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree, and our discussion is not a recommendation for any trading strategy nor tied to any offer or sale of any investment product. The view of our guests are not those of Wisdom Tree or any of its affiliates. So with that out of the way, Professor Siegel, please explain <laughs> what the hell is going on in the markets these days. Yes, good afternoon. Well, we're doing a little better, certainly, than we did this morning. I mean, actually, uh, S&P is now down less than uh, 1%. It did enter what's called correction territory uh, late in the morning, uh, which is defined as a um, close-to-close um, 10% drop, but we haven't closed yet, and we're not to 10%, so we may avoid it. Um, uh, yeah, you know, the big picture, and, you know, I would warned about this happening, trying to come to come to grips with uh, higher interest rates, uh, structure, uh, come to come come to grips with uh, earnings growth not going to be anywhere as good next year as this year. That all that said, um, you know we're at levels where I think stocks are pretty attractive for long long term investors. Not saying there's not going to be more short term. Uh, volatility out there, but uh, you know you're go- you're going now towards sixteen, seventeen price earnings ratios, um, and even though in rates have gone up, this is a low interest rate environment. I, I don't think anyone is going to really go wrong uh, uh, if you take a long term focus. GDP came out very much as we expected, a little bit of a beat, not on my beat actually, because I expected to be a little bit higher. Uh, but once you mention that from the those that I I uh, follow, uh, this quarter that we're in uh, is only moving at around two and a half percent. Now it's kind of early, and we we have a lot to go to. But uh, again, I'm not sure whether we can sustain the three three and a half percent type of growth that we saw uh, in the middle. Particularly disappointing, of course, was uh, you know we did see a big slowdown in the capital spending. Um, uh, government contributed a half a percent. We love it to be the private sector more than the government. Uh, there's still trade issues coming forward, so there's challenges. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's not a disaster. I don't see a recession on the horizon. I am really going to be uh, uh, interested in seeing a week from today. We do have the October employment report. Um, you know, we look, look, look at that very, very closely to see whether there's further pressures on the labor market. 
Got it. Do you have any opinions on the uh, international side of the house? Because the kind of the yeah. market destruction is way heavier out there. W- yeah. w- what's your opinion there? Yeah, well, I, as I've been saying, um, they are better values um, than we have in the U.S. And the U.S. is not bad values by any sense, but we're looking at 12, 13 P.E. in Europe. We're looking at 10 P.E. in the emerging markets. Um uh, the emerging markets certainly will get hit when U.S. is getting hit as far as that's concerned. But actually, I see the, a little bit of a slowdown, a little bit more value hunting there, uh, rotation towards a, a pretty good dividend yielders that, that are in those emerging markets, a little bit less panic on the currency side. As I say, three- to five-year holders will benefit by giving an international tilt to their equity portfolio. Professor Sago, i got to ask, I know you're a trend follower, potentially at heart. Uh, all the trends are busted out there. Signals yeah. say don't own it, but tactically, what, what do you do? And long term, what are you thinking? Well, you know, you know we had the same 10% drop, uh, you know, in February. It was actually even faster than we had over here. And you're, you're right, that actually really erased a ramp-up that was just almost like a bubble that occurred in January. We didn't see the ramp-up, but, you know, the trend, we've had a two-year upward trend at a rate that isn't sustainable. I mean, it was good news, good news, and all that, but it couldn't be sustained there. We did get a lot of momentum followers, um, and as a result, when you crack those trends, and we saw it, uh, you know, 200-day moving average, um, trend lines and all that, you get a lot of technical selling out there. Uh, I think that's where you begin to pick up the longer-term values. Uh, I mean, you know, I know a lot of people pay, pay attention to the technical side, but it is very, very short run. And you won't win in the long run by just playing the, the, the technical indicators. Uh, that being said, you know, uh, you know. I, I said it's going to be zero to ten percent uh, at the end of last year for 2018. Where I think now we're a return of plus one percent, uh, just in that range. Uh, for 2019, let's see where we end up at December. I think by the end of December, we may also hopefully have resolution of the, the Chinese tra- trade deal. I mean, the two things: the election coming up. Uh, a December FOMC meeting, uh, still big expectation they're going to raise again, uh, despite all the noise. I mean, we'd have to have a big stock market sell-off with a lot of bad data coming in, you know, in the next six weeks uh, to stop that. Not impossible, but it would take a lot worse data than, you know, than we're getting. Uh, and, uh, of course, the deadline on the trade war, uh, December 31st, for all those new uh, tariffs coming in on China. So, you know, there's a lot to look forward to, but, you know, I'm, I'm looking right now at the Dow down 100 points. Three hours ago, I saw it down 500 points. So, you know, I, I, there are value hunters out there. <laughs> Makes sense. I, I do got to ask you one last question. There's, uh, you know, Jeremy Grantham and the crew over at GMO, they're death of the world types, but uh, they just had their, I think it was their seven-year projections for U.S. equity something like negative 6% a year. I know you probably have a different opinion. You mind sharing that with the audience? Yeah, well, I think they've been negative 6% a year for the last five years. Hasn't done very well, has it? No. Uh, we've had 10 to 15%. He's been very negative for a long time. 
I mean, those people, you know, and we've explained a long time, use the CAPE ratio. I've talked about the problems of the CAPE ratio and why it gave all sorts of false indicators over the last decade. Um, you know, you know, I don't know if it made a dent uh, on these guys. I mean, I'm talking about asthma. I'm talking about Arnott, uh, um, uh, and, and you can add Jeremy Grantham mm-hmm. uh, to that group. Um, uh, the the 2008-2009 financial crisis and recession totally distorted the CAPE ratio. That data will be getting out of the the series. Uh, very, very soon. And um, uh, the idea that, and in fact, it's interesting because Grantham actually accepted my idea that the P.E. ratio should not go back to the 150-year average that we've had from 1871 to the present, that there is a rationale for a higher level of P.E. I'm not talking about 2025, but I'm talking about 18. And we're there. I mean, we're probably, actually, right now, I think in today's market, we're under 18 times estimated 2018 earnings. So, you know, on a, on a longer-term valuation basis, we are, we're not overvalued. The CAPE is still giving that false overvalued signal, as it has for the last eight years. Um, you know, I mean, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they think they're going to be vindicated by what they see in the last three weeks in the market, but I don't think so. Yeah, well... As always, Professor, very insightful, and thank you for sharing your knowledge, and uh, have a great weekend. Okay, we'll talk to you next week on uh, the labor market. You got it. Appreciate it. So uh, turning back to the studio here, we're going to discuss something that has nothing to do with the market, uh, take our minds off of it. We're going to talk about cybersecurity today. And I have two very special guests. Um, I'll do a quick intro, and then I'll let them speak. But we have Brandon Kepke who is the chief technology officer at our firm, Alpha Architect. And we also have Patrick Cleary, who is the chief operating officer at Alpha Architect. Um, So, gentlemen, welcome to the studio, and thanks for showing up. Thank you. Great to be here. So, first, uh, Pat, tell us a little bit about yourself. Just share with the listeners your background. Sure. So, um, back in the ancient history of of 2003-04, I was at uh, Wharton with you, Wes, um, and... uh, I, I lost a bet and uh, joined the Marine Corps, much like yourself, did that. Um, I basically got C's in Professor Siegel's classes, so I had to go back to Harvard Business School and relearn uh, what I didn't learn earlier, and uh, was a consultant for a while, and then just fell in love with asset management. Um, you know, always great to work with uh, people you respect and admire, and so uh, that's what brought me here. Outstanding. And Brandon, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. Uh, well, um uh got interested in computers from a very young age um you know started off with the Macintosh classic uh that would have been about 6 years old um and then actually ended up uh you know getting more and more interested in it um around 11 12 started programming uh ended up uh, well maintaining all the servers and that kind of thing for my for my dad's store so I'd get called out uh, uh, during school, um, you know, middle of class. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're kind of like the Doogie Howser MD of computer geeks. I don't know if you're old enough to even remember that I, show. I, but I, I am uh, aware, yes. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, and then uh, just kind of did it in, um, you know, took computer science in university and finance as well. And, uh, you know, 
Great. Well, well uh, Pat, um, back to you. So tell us a little about specific with your background. How did you get involved with cybersecurity in particular? So I, I lost a bet, Wes. I, I hate computers. I'm the opposite of Brandon. I just learned how to program my coffee maker to make coffee the next morning. So that's kind of like my tech achievement. Um, but as a COO of an asset management firm, I mean, you're you're constantly worried about compliance and making sure that we're staying staying abreast of regulations, being a best in class, blah blah blah. But what I've noticed is is it's becoming less and less about you know how how do you allocate your trades, how do you make sure you're not short shifting one client over the other. That computers are taking care of all that, and what are you left with? You're left with the big elephant in the room, which is cybersecurity, and so kind of realized about 18, 20 months ago, we had good policies in place, but this was something where I think the asset management firms of the future, if you're an advisor, this has to be a core competency of yours. And if you're an investor, this is something you have to be asking your advisor, or potential advisor, uh, what their capabilities are. And so that's kind of how I just, despite my lack of tech expertise, I just, you know, plugged my nose and jumped into the deep end. Yeah, and and I know the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, which helps kind of monitor and regulate a lot of this stuff. W- what are they up to, and how is what they're asking impacting investors out there and advisors who help investors? Well, uh, the SEC currently is still wiping the egg off their face after they got hacked uh, and had a bunch of insider trading uh, signals taken off of their Edgar platform. So if you, if any of you have any experience with the Edgar platform, that's where these companies and hedge funds file their their private holdings and whatnot, and they're, um, uh, they're, they're pretty sensitive. And it looks like something out of like a 1985 um, website, one of the very first. It's very legacy, very old, and it got hacked. And so the the SEC in real time is kind of realizing if we're going to be enforcing cybersecurity regulations, we better act the part. So what are they doing? They've established a cybersecurity division. Uh, there's also a cybersecurity sweep that they're doing, and they just issued their first uh, fine to avoid financial advisors for not having the proper cybersecurity safeguards in place. And so that's kind of like your first smoke signal from the mountaintop of the regulators that, hey, we're here. Um, this is now... Uh, an enforceable position we're taking, and we're going after folks. So wow. they're 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 kind of turning the corner from, hey, do you have a cybersecurity manual? Tell us about it. To all right, we know what you should have in place, and we're going to bust you if you don't have it. Got it. Got it. So they're in some sense they're a great example of why you need cybersecurity. And now they're also enforcing on others. So yeah. uh, interesting. Now, Brandon, uh, I know you, we should get you to speak a little bit about your background because you are a Amazon former engineer. Glad you're not working there today. Uh, <laughs> stock's off 10% probably now. But um, please please scare the audience here into why they should care about cybersecurity with some of the high-profile events you've heard and learned about over the years. Well, it's uh, it's really sort of like the, the fat tail. Um, it's it's like insurance, right? Um, so there's, I mean, there's this has been in the news a lot lately. The Equifax hack, something like 100 and... 40 million people's social security numbers, uh, driver's licenses, like really, really uh, intimate details. Um, Like there was a Sony hack that had a lot more uh, people involved. But that Equifax hack in particular, uh, just the amount of data and like so specific about each person, it's enough that, uh, I mean, it's what banks are using to authorize you for um, 
yeah, more, I mean, more credit and and all that. Yeah, I mean, sort of you, thing. particularly with Equifax, I I got screwed on that deal because I was relying on them to protect my credit information. And then the great irony is they're supposed to be the people protecting me, and then they get hacked. So I, I unfortunately lived through that one. What, what are some other things you've seen and heard that are kind of freaking people out these days? Uh, well, there's been like a uh, quite a few um, high-profile like hacks on the Swift network. Um, you, you mind just explaining what Swift network is and what it does? Well, I know sort of tangentially, um, like trying to get access. Like we actually looked into getting access ourselves, and it's uh, uh, pretty expensive. Sure, but uh, it's basically how banks transfer money back and forth with each other, right? Yeah, I mean it's it's just kind of like a, a closed network, and the idea is. At least I, I believe that the security model is designed around, um, well, it's a trust model. So if you're on that network, like it's very expensive and getting cumbersome to get on. But once you're on, it's kind of like a safe haven, or that's how they perceive it. So mm-hmm. if someone actually gets into that SWIFT network, uh, the protections aren't quite as strong as what you would hope. Sure. And, and someone did get on it, and what happened? They well, they were actually apparently uh, well in the most recent one, and and there's lots of speculation around who it was. I think it was Kapersky that was really looking into it, um, and uh, there was about almost a billion dollars I think that they were trying to transfer. They got away with uh, about eighty million. Uh, it was sourced potentially uh, to North Korea, which would be really interesting because uh, it would be the first time that um, like a state actor actually stole funds. Um, you know, that's a pretty big uh, bank heist. Yeah. And actually, the only reason that they even, like, found it is someone had made a spelling mistake on one of the... Um, oh, wow. So uh, the, yeah, on one, of the, on one of the, like, checks, or I forget exactly how it happened. But yeah, uh, you would think that if $80 million was gone, uh, more than a spelling mistake would have, you know, fired a signal off or something. Well, I think, I think what happened is that... Um, the system like found the error and printed out a sheet, and somebody's like looking at this and going, "I wonder what that's about." And that's where they discovered the you know eight hundred and seventy million something other. Uh, yeah, wow. And I, and I know you used to work at Disney in their on their tech side. I I know the story you always say about about the issue you found there. You mind just sharing that experience and uh, highlighting it can happen anywhere. Yeah, well, and that c- kind of brings me back to the background. Um, most of the people that I know that are really good with cybersecurity in particular, uh, I mean, there are always people that are really interested in computers and just, like, inquisitive. Um, and actually, well, there's another guy, um, Kevin Mitnick, um, and uh, he is, he's famous for hacking into Bell Labs and um, doing all sorts like he actually had some some jail time for that wow. but um he he was just interested like he actually wasn't trying to uh to steal anything or anything like that and uh while i was working at disney um i was privately building my own sort of distributed like authentication system kind of like um directory service yeah there's this thing called ldap uh, that stores usernames that kind of thing uh kerberos is then a, another system that's used to actually do the auth and i it was so complicated, and I thought, well, I wonder how they've done it at Disney, because when I logged into my laptop, you know, super easy, seemed seamless. I was surprised they weren't having any, any issues with it. And when I really looked into it, it turned out they actually didn't have any of the proper authentication enabled at all. Uh, so you could query this, um, like, authentication server and effectively dump, like, all of the... So there was, like, 8,000 uh, usernames 
passwords. Um, so obviously, like I, I reported it right away, and I was quite surprised um, at how sort of like nonchalant they were. Like there's actually a security code on every single person's machine that gave you access to like everything, the whole user database. So, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, well, I still will be going to Disney World in the future, <laughs> but uh, hopefully they got that squared away. Um, and before we start, just like to quick uh, recap here, I'd like to quickly introduce my guests now who are both in the studio with me. It's uh, Patrick Cleary, Chief, Chief Operations Officer at Alpha Architect, and Brandon Kepke, the Chief Technology Officer at Alpha Architect, and we are talking about cybersecurity. So, Pat, shifting back to you. Again, Highline, your focus specifically on advisor cybersecurity, which makes sense because advisors handle other people's money. Um, what do you think? Like, what do advisors think when they hear cybersecurity? Are they paying attention to this stuff at all? Uh, I think they're terrified. When you ask advisors what they think about with cybersecurity, I think most of them, you know, cybersecurity is kind of like this word that is used to scare folks, you know. And so what, cyber, what, what folks do is basically they know, they, they know a lot about the headlines Brandon's talking about. So they know bad people are doing horrible things. And what does that do? You get your kind of behavioral biases kicking in and you start buying lots of insurance. You start throwing money at lots of, at lots of problems that may or, may or may not exist. And finally, uh, you may just stick your head in the sand and hope that the SEC monster doesn't come knocking on your door, which uh, I do not recommend. So what are advisors doing? I I think advisors are hungry for some common sense, practical solutions to get their heads wrapped around this. And also, it's more of just an education effort. When we say cybersecurity, it's kind of like we're talking about crime. Okay, like what kind of crime? Are we talking serial killers here? Are we talking about jaywalking? I mean, there's a wide spectrum of cybersecurity um, so I think right now we're still in these early stages of understanding what the heck do we need to do? What the heck do we need to do to instill confidence with our clients and, and things like that? And, and what is kind of the biggest problem they're facing right now? Because I assume a lot of these people aren't Brandons with monster tech backgrounds. So what, what's their biggest issue right now? So I think I think the biggest issue is awareness. And I will probably never say this sentence again in my life the federal government is a great resource. So um, if, if you're an advisor or if you're looking to hire a financial advisor, I highly recommend you Google NIST. It's the National Institute for, Institute for Standards and Technology. Google NIST Cybersecurity Framework. Because the government had the same problem. They had all these different agencies that were being yelled at by Congress. Hey, fix cybersecurity, cybersecurity, Iran, North Korea, you know, hack, ah, do something. And so all of these federal agencies started squirreling around trying to fix the cybersecurity problems. And so you had the Bureau of the, you had the Department of the Interior with one cybersecurity standard. You had the FBI with another, NSA, CIA. So you had basically 20 different flavors of vanilla ice cream. And so the government came in uh, under under, uh, W. Bush and basically said, okay, we are going to set a standard and a framework that everybody has to use. And they basically gave the National Institute of Standards and Technology a charter to set that standard. And so what I would say is is NIST is basically the gold standard for federal agencies when designing their cybersecurity programs, and they're encouraging the private sector to do the same. So whether you are a nuclear power plant or a small financial advisor, this framework applies and it's a great resource. So I think that's like the main step that the government is trying to push people towards is just make them aware that, hey, you don't have to solve cybersecurity by yourself. You probably can't afford Brandon. So what do you need to do? You need to go to where we've already kind of written the playbook. Got it. So in some sense, a lot of people can rely on the 
resources and research that the federal government's already done and essentially go to this this NIST website that's NIST and and it's kind of a playbook for how to at least build out your systems. Yeah, and, and I'd say the main thing is is you know NIST isn't going to give you the answer, but as you read through that framework, eighty five percent of this is not technical stuff. You need to have, I mean, um, you know, you have to invest in some education to become cybersecurity savvy. I, I don't want to sugarcoat it, but. of this stuff is being disciplined, having processes in place, and basically enforcing policies amongst your own employees, which is is critical. So you'd be surprised how low-tech cybersecurity can be. Yeah, so got it. So it's like you primarily run a Marine platoon. 90% of your job is managing Marines to just do what they're supposed to do. Yeah, it's adult daycare. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, got it. So so in many respects, cybersecurity is less of a technical issue and more of just a discipline issue and awareness issue. Yeah, well that's what when I was when I started building out our cybersecurity program, I was I was telling myself, okay, I'm going to have to learn these different technologies and I need to learn all about encryption, I need to do all this stuff. And then again, the more you read, the more it's about just having disciplined, sustainable process. We, you know, we call it cyber hygiene. It's basically having good cyber hygiene and it's a lot of it's common sense. Got it, got it. And Brandon, maybe for a, a different opinion or maybe the same opinion, it does at some level sound very technical. I mean, do you really need to be an Amazon programmer to do this, or can you just have the ability to program your coffee like Pat can do and myself? Allegedly. We, we haven't got there yet. We're going to try it out. Well, I think it depends on the uh, on the scale of your business. Like Amazon obviously needs Amazon engineers, and they wouldn't be hiring him, right? Yeah. Um, but for most smaller firms, I mean, really, like I haven't worked for – um, a single software company with less than uh, 30 people that had a dedicated security person. Um, that's really weird. Like, obviously, Amazon had people dedicated to security. Um, same with same with Disney. But for smaller firms, I mean, if honestly, if you're under 30 people, just having someone that can do the technology for you, like just regular IT, really, uh, is what you should be looking for. And, um, like, specifically in terms of protecting yourself, um, the single most important thing you can do is keep your software updated. Hmm. Uh, I mean, there's a really important reason. Like, if you're the kind of person that's turned off, um, Windows 10 has this thing called UAC. Mm-hmm. The thing uh, that annoys me all the time y- yeah, that, I, that yeah. I always try to turn off on my computer. That's, that's actually yeah. really yeah, that's important. that's the one, Wes. <laughs> that's, that's exactly the one. All right, so stop doing that. So do not turn that off. It's, it's okay. really, really important. Okay, um, got it. So these annoying updates you always get, number one rule is actually make sure they're updated. Well, and normally when micro, like if you get a, a rush update, um, unless you're really like reading about this kind of thing, you're not going to know um, whether it's a security update. Like a lot of times, like there will be, a, if you've heard the term zero day before, I've heard it. I don't know what it means. So basically, it's like a previously undisclosed um, like flaw in the software that has security implications. Um, and so sometimes like a zero day will come out, and the worst case, it's in the browser uh, or it's something that can be remotely um, executed. Because when that happens, people can set up, like just on a regular website, infect you with a virus or something of that sort, um, you know, malware, that kind of thing. Um and so Microsoft turns around and they try to patch these things as quickly as they can. You know, they've got engineers working all night when this kind of thing happens. Uh, they push out the security update and then some people are like, oh, God, you know, why do I have to install this thing? Yeah. Computer's rebooting. But 
honestly, it's it's really really important. Got it. And and actually, we got got about uh, thirty seconds here. Uh, you mentioned I think it was what Windows, uh, an old Windows version where you're able to hack by like clicking Control oh, Delete two times or something. Yeah, so yeah. That might be a good way to scare people into updating their machines. Well, uh, yeah, Windows XP actually out of the box. If if you just got a machine from from a regular store, most of the time they pre-configure it without disabling the built-in administrator account. And so you come up to the, um, you know, Toys R Us style login. Uh, and actually, if you hit Control-Delete there two times in XP, it brings up a separate, like, login prompt. And if you just typed Administrator with a capital A, no password, 9 out of 10 machines, it would let you in. So definitely want to update your software. Probably don't be running XP forever, right? Yeah. Well, and and actually, just just one final point. Sure. Um, the Equifax hack was actually caused by a, like someone not installing a software update. Oh wow! So the, somehow someone got in because on a stale software load. Well, there was a flaw um, in this framework called Struts, and it was published like several months before uh, as a critical vulnerability, and they didn't patch it. So. Wow. Well, you're freaking me out here, which means we're going to continue this discussion about cybersecurity. We will stop scaring you and start telling you how to uh, deal with it. For the first half of the conversation, we kind of talked about a lot of the reasons why you should be concerned about cybersecurity. And in the second half, we're going to focus more on like the tactical things you can do specific for advisors and investors when considering cybersecurity and, and how to protect against it. So, Pat, you have literally built this program at our firm um you might get in the weeds a little bit here like what makes a good cybersecurity program yeah certainly and and wes i'm going to try and answer your question into in, in a way where if you're an advisor if you manage people's money you can actually take what we're talking about and implement it before you pay somebody you know a thousand bucks to give you consulting and if you're just an investor try and and take heed of kind of some of the things we talk about and these are things you can be asking your uh, investment advisor about. And if you get a blank thousand yard stare, or if their bottom lip starts quivering, uh, you may have your answer on what their cybersecurity policy is. So here to, to answer your question at a very high level, a good cybersecurity program has three elements. You basically have a cybersecurity manual. You have a implementation system of some form, and that can be Excel, that can be legal pads with red pen, that can be a high, high speed, low drag system. You have some, some tool that implements your manual, that basically does what you say you do. And then what I think is the most critical piece is you have a risk assessment process, which basically is this ongoing exercise. Most firms do it annually, but this ongoing exercise where they say, okay, let's just hit the pause button on everything we're doing. How good is our system? What's broken? What needs to be fixed? What needs to be improved? Hey, Brandon, our new CTO says we should do X, Y, or Z different because uh, underlying those three core principles is you need a combat mindset. You basically need to have this this uh, mindset of we're going to be constantly training, we're going to be constantly ready, we're going to be constantly improving. So uh, I think if you take those three elements, put a combat mindset on top of it, that at a high level is what makes a great cyber. Well, and uh, Pat, you, you'd actually done a pretty terrific job before I even came in. Like most of what I was doing um, was just taking that stuff and and automating what you had. Oh, thanks, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> no, Kumbaya no, in, no, uh, in the situation no. room here. And so that sounds great. Now, now, what should you avoid when making one of these cybersecurity programs? So I, I, think, uh, I think what you should avoid is first 
out just outsourcing a lot and we see this you see this in the investment management business on everything it's not just cybersecurity right it's like well this isn't the core activity that i enjoy doing so i'm going to outsource it as soon as you start outsourcing things like compliance cybersecurity your back office operations so when you start outsourcing you start losing an understanding of what's going on and if you lose an understanding of what's going on that is what makes you vulnerable at a minimum it makes you min- it makes you vulnerable from an examination perspective but more importantly you know it could put your firm's viability or your client's assets at risk so those are the that that i think is the main thing don't just throw money at the problem and don't shy away from getting smart yourself we cannot outsource knowledge you can outsource activity you can't outsource knowledge yeah i, I think um i'm just reminiscing a little bit about your comment about combat mindset here and i think in the marine corps you don't hire someone to like help you defend your fighting hole like you probably want to do that yourself because <laughs> yeah. if you hire somebody they don't do a good job you're going to die and uh, i guess it, maybe that applies in cybersecurity in some sense where you actually this could really destruct your life you probably want to know what's actually going on as opposed to just hiring a mercenary yeah i mean well let's let's take you know for for folks at home let's 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 take this to something that may be more you know you can visualize better you know when 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 we were in iraq or at least when i was i can't speak to us's experience but when i was in iraq the main risks to my Marines' livelihoods. Yes, we were very worried about these catastrophic attacks or these complex, um, you know, ambushes and things you'd, you'd seen on TV before you actually joined the service. That's what you think you're going to be worried about. What I what really kept me up at night are my Marines cleaning their weapons. Are they wearing their their uh, their their eye protection? Are they are they do do they have all those very boring? You know, are they wearing their flak jacket correctly? Do they have water? You know, all these things that seem so mundane. It's just this constant. You're like Sisyphus, just constantly rolling that that rock up the hill. And I think that uh, encapsulates you know the mindset you have to have with cybersecurity as well. It's not going to be the Iranians do not care unless you are a big bank uh, about your firm per se. What what. The, the bigger risk is your employee who, as Brandon was talking about, is turning off their updates, um, you know, sharing passwords, clicking on the, you know, the PDF link, uh, things like that. So that's um, th- those that's kind of the, the parallel I draw between the combat mindset of the Marines and, and cybersecurity. Yeah, I think it makes sense. And, and just from having been through uh, like examinations from like the SEC and everything, w- what is it that a lot of times the regulatory agencies are looking for? when they come in and audit an advisor or, or like, what are they concerned about? So, you know, the SEC, uh, first off, um, you know, people joke about regulators. I think the SEC does a fantastic job. And I, I, um, I just want to say, you know, th- those folks, 90% of the time, 95% of the time, they just want to make sure a, they're protecting investors, but B making you better. Right. And so what do they want to see? Most advisors have some form of a compliance manual and cybersecurity manual. And so the first thing they're going to say is, okay, do you have a cybersecurity manual? And you say, yes, I do. Here it is. And uh, it was last looked at in 1998, and it still references the Mac, uh, the Mac 2C uh, computer that Brandon used to have back in the 80s. You know, so they're going to see a cybersecurity manual, but what they really care about is they want to see, okay, is this manual being updated? And then how are you actually doing this? Okay, it says on page two, you're going to be doing X, Y, and Z. Show me where you do that and where you document it. So the cyber, just having the, the, the stack of paper on your desk is not sufficient. You actually have to have the tools to implement it. That's what they're going to be looking for. Got it. It makes sense. So like when I ask my dad like how secure his email is and I can just go on his phone and start sending emails, 
even though he said he does two-step security, you got to actually do what you say. Exactly. Yeah, and they're going to be, um, you know, and they'll they'll go they'll go into your office and they'll just start walking around. I mean, you can learn a lot about a firm cybersecurity posture just by the layout of the office, what their employees are doing. If the employees are getting up and uh, the screen locks aren't kicking in, I mean, that's a big indicator. You know, it's, it's very easy to observe some of the very basic low-hanging fruit of cybersecurity. So um, it all gets back to that that combat mindset. Got it. Now, Brandon, th- this. Like, def- certainly sounds all doable, and, and we've emphasized why it's important to probably deal with this problem yourself. But let's say you just don't want to deal with this. Like, if you wanted to outsource, you're going to hire someone. What kind of characteristics or skills and talents would you be looking for to you know try to solve the cyber problem here? Well, uh, for most firms, uh, I mean, if you're under 30 people, um, I probably wouldn't look for someone with like security specifically. Um, unless you're actually designing a piece of software yourself. You know, if you're building a piece of software yourself, you really do need someone that that's their primary job. Uh, so even for the tools and things that, that we've developed uh, in-house, uh, we still outsource the security piece of it, like the actual login authentication. Like, we didn't write that piece. Um, like, we actually used uh, Auth0, um, and then we authenticate against some different backends. Um, but that's something like the actual login authentication. That's something that you really do need an expert to write. Yeah. Um, but if you're not doing that, I mean, really what you need or what, what most people need, like upgrade your router. Like if it's five years old, there's actually a huge um, uh, bit of malware going around that's like a drive-by, like infect the router. Um, and then it monitors data, all kinds of things. Some guy actually um, was going around and patching uh, some, of the, some of those routers. Um, wow. So it kind of goes back to the update your software thing, update your hardware as well. That, that's a lot of how the, the crooks and the bad guys get in. Yeah, and then, I mean, other than that, um, you know, try to not expose any, any servers or machines unless you really know what you're doing. Um, you know, if you've got a... Uh, MySQL database that's uh, wide open to the world, you know, you better really know what you're doing there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we'll, we'll take a, a quick uh, just refresh here. This is Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132, and we're talking all things cybersecurity. And we actually have a caller on the line. Uh, Barry, what's uh, your question? Uh, I have a comment and a question. Um, so there's a lot of... Um the attack surface is great, and there's so many vectors, and there's so many, like, administrators, the machines, the users, there's so many ways, and you're only as strong as your weakest point, right, when it comes to security. So I was um, uh, wondering, like, what's the next thing in terms of managing all that? I mean, I I hear a lot about artificial intelligence and machine learning, you know, that's going to help, you know, because there's... There's only two things out there they say. One is, like, either you're hacked or you don't know you're hacked, right? There's no such thing as nobody's been hacked, right? It's just sometimes it's just there. You don't know it. It's out of sight. So it's, it's a huge problem. And, and you know, human ha- humans can be creative and all that, but there's limit to our processing abilities and things like that. So we have tools. Uh, how is artificial intelligence and machine learning helping to address that? And, and what's the next – what does it look like uh, – in terms of future. Bear, that's a great question. Brandon, you mind uh, taking that and then I'll do a follow-up because I have experience with what he's talking about. Well, on the machine learning aspect specifically, um, there 
there are software tools that try to like monitor network traffic, that kind of thing for suspicious activity. Uh, that might be a little bit of a help, but uh, one thing that's happening that that's actually really nice is uh, like SSL is really being pushed. TLS. Um, so you mind is explaining what that means specifically? Well, so most of your uh, web browsing now is actually pretty secure, um, and so as long as it's it's configured with with this like SSL security layer, it means that like between your machine and the remote machine, um, like say you're on your bank website, like HSBC or whoever, um, if you've got an SSL TLS connection there, no one's going to be able to see inside that connection. So literally, uh, the only way that they're going to be able to get in is if they're like get a piece of software physically onto your machine, and that's a whole. You know that's a whole different thing, and I, I honestly don't think that everybody is is hacked. Um, I mean, maybe at big companies, you know. Yeah, where, where it's uh, like a bigger issue, like like maybe a small advisor. You do want to, as the caller mentioned, you want to worry about your attack surface, but at some level, just don't do too many stupid things. Yeah, I mean, um, if you're if you're a smaller firm, um, you know, you you likely aren't hacked, and if you are, you 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 probably do know but a bigger firm um yeah i would i would definitely agree yeah with that. and i'll just tell a quick story because it's actually related to what barry is mentioning and our own issue with it but i think it's like five or six years ago we you know we had this blog and before we got real cognizant of this whole cybersecurity thing all like we didn't even know it but someone in the background because one of our users who will remain nameless wasn't me uh but you know their username was their name and their password was their name and so, obviously, someone hacked that, mm-hmm. and they had implanted a blog, like, in the archives, where the only, and we had no clue, it was there for, you know, two years, probably, and the only way we found about out about it is someone was on our website, they're like, why do you guys have a blog post about selling, like, foreign exchange and gold stuff? Like, isn't this an educational thing? And I was like, yeah, like, what are you talking about? And so, and that was because, to Barry's point, we didn't have any ways to monitor this. So we literally, like, someone had kind of hacked us in a not really a malicious way that can do too much damage, but we weren't able to monitor it. So it's actually a great question, and um, you know, I think it makes sense to, you know, pay attention to it. Uh, and Pat, you had some comments? So I think, uh, I think, Barry, you raise a I – love, I love your statement. You know, you should either assume you've already been hacked or uh, you're about to be hacked or you're too arrogant and you don't think you've been hacked, but you actually have been. Um, I, I think – what the approach we've taken and I'd advise all advisors to do is to your point, minimize that attack surface as much as possible. So what we did at alpha architect through that risk assessment process is basically break down. Okay. If, if I were to hack, if I were to hack alpha architect, is there anything of value I could take? And I want that answer to be no. So a lot of things advisors should be thinking about is a data purge policy. Like you do not have to be a Amazon programmer to think about, okay, do I really need to hold on to this data or not? It blows my mind. You walk into some of these financial advisors and they have filing cabinets after filing cabinets of client files going back 25 years. Guess what, folks? The SEC doesn't really care after seven. So there's, you know, if you need certain key documents, maybe a know your customer template or something like that, you know, yeah, save, save that, save that piece of paper. But we, we have a problem with we're uh, addicted to data and we just hold on to everything. And so one thing we've done is have is put together a risk 
by, or excuse me, a data purging matrix where we basically say, okay, what are the critical data elements and do we need to hold them? And if so, for how long? Um, I don't need a client's social security number to recommend an asset allocation portfolio, right? And so there's just th- there's pieces of data you no longer need. And so uh, a very low-tech solution to Barry's question is minimize that, that attack surface redaction, um, things like that. Well, and actually circling yeah, back saying. on... Um, uh, where Wes brought up the uh, the sort of WordPress issue that we had, that kind of goes back to if you're going to have a security module, you really need somebody that knows what they're doing. Like if you're hosting a piece of software, something like that. Because, um, I mean, the, the easiest way to fix that would have been to have uh, password requirements. Um, like, you know, user-user is, is not a great username-password combo. Yeah, we, uh, you know... We fix that now. We, we did fix that, but my computer science degree uh, and common sense degree <laughs> failed me. Um, so anyways, I do want to say thanks to uh, Barry. Um, and again, all, to, all the listeners out there, we do have two experts here, so you get some free advice. Uh, fee, feel free to call or comment. You can uh, call one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two. 7866 and we'd be happy to address any of your questions you might have um so one of the things uh that i think i just again i'm thinking back to the military now you know when i used to do intel it's kind of the same idea with information like it should be compartmentalized where if i'm hanging around like you know kicking tires with iraqis do i really need access to the nsa cia terradome Probably not. You know, they probably don't want me to know that anyways. Like, I need to know how to, like, shoot an AK-47 or something. Um, so I, I think it makes a lot of sense. Don't collect the Social Security number when you're, you know, giving people your asset allocation advice. Um, makes a lot of sense. Now, Pat, one of the things I know that you focus a lot on as well, and I think it's super interesting, is just you're not only on the hook for, like, us not being stupid, but... <clears throat> the firms and vendors we hire, we need to make sure they're not being stupid, right? Because they, they control our clients' information. How do you think about vendor management and just understand that risk? Yeah, no, so that's a great question. And if I were to try and scare an advisor to worry about something, this is what I'd ask them to worry about. We've had a lot of high-profile attacks. You look at the Target hack, you look at the Home Depot hack, um, a lot of these hacks you know, Target and Home Depot had very effective cybersecurity measures in place. They had a great castle with a deep moat. Uh, they had the top brains working on their problems. What they didn't have, though, was they had weak vendors, and the vendors themselves didn't have the right cybersecurity policies, and that allowed these hackers to come in through the side door, if you will, and exfiltrate a, a ton of data. So how do you think about uh, vendor management? Let, let me back up a step higher and say, you know, as, as part of this risk assessment, you'll address vendors. Um, Actually, for advisors, go to FINRA's website, just Google small firm cybersecurity checklist. One of those key elements of, uh, of the risk assessment, they actually give you a risk assessment to fill out. So you don't want to say, hey, you need to have a risk assessment as part of your cybersecurity program. Download that piece. If you look at the NIST framework and the FINRA risk assessment I mentioned, both of those talk about vendor management. And so how do you think about vendor management? Well, uh, you have two options. Option one is is you could get on a plane and you could fly to every single one of your vendors and you could um, you probably probably going to need a PhD in computer science and you can inspect every single vendor you work with uh, for the, to make sure they have the appropriate cyber cybersecurity controls in place. Not effective. Uh, too way too difficult. Probably can't do that. 
So what you have to do is you have to look at your vendors and see what type of accreditations or standards they hold themselves to, and you can rely on those accreditations to pass muster for, for your cyber program. So again, going back to what the federal government has done, the federal government has a standard called FedRAMP certification. You can also Google uh, FedRAMP, that's F-E-D-R-A-M-P. FedRAMP, you know, once, once the federal government started getting all their cybersecurity in order, they then said, well, uh, the CIA wants a cloud provider and the Department of Interior wants a cloud provider and the FBI wants a cloud provider. And they were, they were giving out contracts left and right. There was no standardization and nobody knew, okay, well, how do we select a vendor? Well, what, what the feds did was they said, okay, we're going to have one central source of certification for cyber controls. We're going to call it FedRAMP certified. So all of the vendors that want to do business with the government have to meet the standard. So I'd say your first step for vendors is just go to FedRAMP.gov and see if they're FedRAMP certified. For us, during our cybersecurity examination review, we basically laundry list out all of our vendors and then we say, okay, what standards do they hold? And if they hold a FedRAMP certification, that checks them off the box. So Google Suite, Amazon Web Services, FedRAMP certified. If it's good enough for the NSA, it's good enough for us. We download their white paper. We download their FedRAMP certification. We save it keep it nice and organized for the SEC when they come knocking. That's good. Now, not everybody is FedRAMP certified because those are typically reserved for larger firms that are going to be going after federal contracts. So what do you do then? You can then look towards uh, other certifications in cybersecurity. My favorite is SOC 2 certification. So SOC 2, you're getting an Ernst & Young, you're getting a third-party auditor in there, and they're basically signing off on that firm's cybersecurity controls. Most firms of decent, reputable size are at least, are at a minimum SOC 2 certified. So what I would do is on that laundry list, of vendors, just, you know, just find the contact us or find the, you know, um, the reach out to us, you know, email and just say, Hey, we're doing our annual due diligence review. Uh, want to know your accreditation. Can you please send over your SOC 2 certification letter? I'd say 90% of the firms we operate with just send it over immediately. Another 5% asked us to sign an NDA and, um, we got that certification. Then now what, now you have, once you have your SOC 2s identified and your FedRAMP cats and dogs identified now you've got what i like to call your problem children you probably if you're if you're relying to brandon's point if you are you know relying on a special like you know custom software solution or you have let's say your your buddy's doing a startup and and they're in silicon valley and say hey we love you to try out this new fintech uh solution we have this is where you have to roll your sleeves up and and kind of get a little dirty this is where you have to start asking for okay Walk me through your cybersecurity controls. Walk me through your manual. Walk me through, you know, how do you implement this? And if you have to go down that route, I think going back to that NIST framework is a great list. That NIST framework, um, you can ask very technical questions. My personal view is, is get rid of your problem, children. But if you can't, that's where you have to go in the weeds. But at least you're going deep in the weeds on, you know, three or four providers, not 30 or 40. Yeah. And, and I think this makes sense, whether you're an advisor hiring services or even an individual that's very concerned about this. I mean, they can go through all these same steps to call up their bank or call up their provider and say, hey, like, I heard about this podcast or this radio program. Like, I want to know, are you guys legit or not? Well, and actually, sort of, uh, sort of circling back on this, um, if you're like developing something in house, or if you're using like a, a smaller provider, like even big companies have issues, uh, like security issues with building this kind of thing. Like it really is, experts in the field find flaws in this stuff all the time, 
and have difficulty implementing them themselves. So certainly. So we're we got a few minutes here. Um, I'm just thinking you guys can recap kind of your your top points and takeaways for for normal people out there what they can do. So Brandon, what are just a few things where like if you had a laundry list of like three or four items that everyone should be focused on, what, what would you recommend? Well, kind of the the first two we already discussed, like do not disable uh, the built-in security protections. Uh, if you're not on the latest version of an operating system, like even Windows 7 now is reaching end of life in uh, uh, 2020. Like really, if you can get on Windows 10, get on it. The security protections there are are really top-notch. They've done a great job. Okay. And actually, back to the AI thing there, um, it's got... Like Windows Defender has got um, uh, some AI built into it where it's oh, cool. stuff like that. In SSL, make sure you got a little lock Ma- on make the Make sure when browser. you're logging into your bank, you've you've got you've got the, uh, the lock and SSL is enabled. Um, two-factor authentication, if you can, uh, have a different password for every site. Use a password yep. manager. And to clarify that, make sure it has to go through your phone or some other application besides just a password. Yeah, right? and actually with 2FA, if you can, you want the kind that's like works through an application. Because uh, okay. just regular SMS, there's actually problems with that as well. But it. so it's it's doing, better than nothing. But. To clarify, to do two-factor through like your text message is less secure than doing it through Google Authenticator or what have you. Is that yeah, there's a, there's problems with um, the okay. phone networks in general. And Pat, do you have any kind of laundry list of key takeaways for folks out there yeah i'm just gonna gonna fire this off rapid fire so step one download the nist framework and read it step two download the finra cyber small firm Cybersecurity checklist and complete it step three write down all the things that you're missing from those two documents i just told you about and then figure out how to implement those some of those probably include the following step one encrypt all your data so bitlocker on windows automatically encrypts your data so if your data gets stolen at least it's encrypted and it's useless encrypt your data step two uh, as brand said two-factor authentication step three map out what you actually have so i there's so, i talked to so many advisors they they say oh yeah we have great cybersecurity controls that we have we have great cybersecurity controls but then they forget that they work from home so if you work from home make sure you're also including those assets as well Outstanding. Patrick, Brandon, thank you so much for being on today's show. Thank you also to our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. Uh, Have a great weekend, everyone, and remember, don't get hacked. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.